I actually have the great opportunity of having Brandon Stacy. He's going to be preaching today. And I want to give a nice little um, introduction for Brandon. Part of Multiply is that we have realized that as a church, it's time for us to be able to, um, to make some really strategic changes in the organizational structure. And so for the last seven years, we've operated in a, in a, in a, in a government structure of our church with a board of overseers. Well, we have begun to start training, raising up internal elders and trustees who are going to handle a lot of this work on the inside of our church. And Brandon, along with three other men and uh, other men and women who are serving as trustees and elders, um, he is one of those. And I'm so excited for this because me and Brandon, we've actually been best friends since my 16th birthday party. All right. That's how long it's gone. And we got saved at the same time whenever we were 20. And today, Brandon's going to be teaching on the authority of Scripture and why the Bible is reliable. But let me explain to you why I asked Brandon to do this. Because we started a Bible study whenever we first got saved. And me and a couple of my closest friends, along with Ashley and Brandon's now wife, Courtney, we were coming from a place which I guess some people today would use the term deconstruction to describe how we had left the church, came back to faith, and we wanted to be able to figure out what does the Bible actually say. And so we started this Bible study, but we had one rule at this Bible study is that whatever the Bible says, that's what we do. And we submitted under the authority of scriptures for one year, whether we agreed with it or not. And we did a year of biblical living. And that was our challenge for one another. And we would read through the Bible every single day. We would get together on Wednesday nights, and we would study what we had read. And by the end of that year, our lives had completely changed. Our lives looked no different. Looked, our lives did not look the same as they were the day that we met Jesus. And in addition to that, we started with four people, and we looked up, and 20 of our closest friends were all sitting in that room studying the Bible. I'm telling you guys, the Bible changes lives. And so I'm excited to have Brandon come and teach us on the reliability of the scripture out of 2 Peter, Truth and Lies. Let's give it up for Brandon. Come on, Brandon. Good morning, Redemption. Yeah, thanks to you. Thank you again, Pastor Byron, for the introduction, for the opportunity to preach, to bring God's word to you all this morning. Yeah, Byron, he, Pastor Byron gave me the, the simple task of convincing everyone here, skeptics included, that... We can trust the scriptures. And he gave me 30 minutes to do that. So that's, that's my job this morning is to, to convince everybody here that we can believe uh, the Bible. But I want to start by, by doing this. I want to start by asking you all something. And the, the question is this. What happens when the Bible moves from being the answer to being the question? Well, what happens when, when the Bible moves from being this object of trust to an object of, of doubt? There's a statistic that I'm going to throw up on the screens here. And this comes from a survey performed by Ligonier uh, Ministries. Byron actually, you know, he called attention to this uh, study last Sunday. It's called the State of Theology. It's a survey that's performed uh, on U.S. adults and Christians. It's been done every year since 2014. And one of the statements that they asked correspondents to read and determine whether or not they believed it was true, a true statement, was this, that the Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but it is not literally true. 
And the findings were this, that 53% of U.S. adults believe this statement, that the Bible, just like any you know, other ancient writing, it might have stories that can help us out, but it's not literally true. And what's interesting is this is the only survey result of their entire study that has grown every single year since 2014 when the State of Theology survey first began. And it's striking that Christians believe this. 26% of, of Christians believe this. And what that tells me is that there's roughly a quarter of our church that very likely believes this as well, that the Bible has helpful stories, but it's not literally true. And what we need to understand is that in order for us to, to understand the world around us, to understand the culture and to navigate through our lives, we need to embrace truth. We have to embrace, it's necessary for us to embrace truth. And if we believe that God is truth, then we also need to believe that his word is true. We also need to believe then that the scriptures are true. And you see the Bible, it's actually going to tell us a lot about what we believe about God. Uh, you know, what we believe about the Bible is gonna say a lot in regard to what we believe about God. Do we believe he's trust trustworthy? If the Bible is God's word, and we don't believe it's reliable, then do we truly believe that God is reliable? If we don't believe that the scriptures are dependable, then we do, do we truly believe that we can depend on God? You see, what we believe about the Bible actually says a lot about what we believe about God. But what we see in these surveys is that adults in the United States, and even many of us in the church, we, we increasingly reject the authority of the Bible, and we reject the divine authorship of the scriptures. You know, we treat it as, as just another religious text alongside other religious texts like the Quran or the Rig Veda, the ancient Hindu religious text. Now, overwhelmingly, we reject the Book of Mormon, which is interesting because who would b believe that? But I'm, I'm just kidding. That's not in the survey at all. But really, who, who could get behind that? Um, but for these people that, that they believe the Bible is just another book, you know, what happens is this, is it becomes easy to take the parts of the Bible that you agree with, the parts of the Bible that, that resonate with you. It's easy for you to take those and accept those things and then just reject the parts of the Bible that you disagree with. It's easy to start to take the parts of the Bible that are out of step with culture or behind the times or on the wrong side of history or any number of phrases that we hear used today. It's easy to accept the things we like and to throw away the things that we dislike. This is what happens when we begin to perceive the scriptures as just another book, just another religious text. But the truth is this, there are people inside the church who are taking on this perspective. And this is especially dangerous when Christians begin to take up this picture and this understanding of the Bible it becomes dangerous and it becomes deadly when teachers inside the church begin to take up this perspective. When those who are supposed to be shepherding the flock, actually are, there, there are wolves who are trying to lead the people of God astray so that they can devour them. But you see, contrary to the opinion of 53% of U.S. adults and 26% of evangelicals, the Bibles, the scriptures are the unified word of God. And because it is God's word, it is true. And because it's true, it should be obeyed. It should be believed. It should be embraced. And all that it is, in all of its fullness, we should embrace the scriptures. And we are to conform our lives to the scriptures rather than twist the scriptures and conform it to our lives. 
which is what the false teachers here in Second Peter are doing. And this is why this study of truth and lies, this is why it is so important. You know, as I read through Second Peter, it is striking how relevant this book is to the times in which we live. We're going to come across warnings in these just few short chapters about heresies, about falling into false teaching and then following after false teachers. This was happening all throughout the church in the first century, which is why Paul, Peter, excuse me, is having to write this letter that these, these false teachers that came into the church and they claimed to be Christians, but the things that they believed and the way that they lived was contrary to the way that Christ calls us to live. And this is what we saw last week as Pastor Byron walked us through the first 15 verses of 2 Peter, that he was writing to the church, encouraging them to, to pursue holiness. That we had these virtues, that if we build these virtues on top of one another, that if we pursue after godliness, then we will be effective in our life as Christians. And ultimately, we will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But you see, these false teachers, they, the way that they lived was antithetical to everything that the Bible said about holiness. And so what they had to do was they had to twist the scriptures in order to justify their sinful lifestyles. And if you're not careful, if you don't read the Bible, if you don't know your Bible, if you don't trust what your Bible says, then these people, they will entice you and they will devour you. They will devour your lives and your families. And this false teaching will destroy you. And so don't be fooled that this letter is just written to the church here in the first century from, from Peter. This is, this is just as prevalent now as it was 2,000 years ago. We live in a culture that has now creeped into the church that tells us that love and tolerance, these are the things that, that will unite us, and doctrine and dogma are the things that will ultimately divide us. It's a lie. That if you were to reject another person's view in this regard, then you're considered intolerant. And I just want to do something really quick. I just want to, if there's any myth that we're going to discuss this morning, it is this myth of intolerance. To be intolerant is not to disagree with someone else's view or perspective. And intolerance, the way that we, we teach now is that you must accept someone else's lifestyle or the way that they choose to live or the things that they believe in order to be considered tolerant. That's not what tolerance is. Tolerance is the willingness to live alongside those who may believe or live differently than you. And, and we encourage that. The church teaches that. We know that the culture we live in, the Bible speaks this very clearly that we will live amongst different peoples who believe different things, and it's okay to live alongside those people. That's tolerance. But tolerance is not to accept the way that other people decide to live their lives. That is that's very new. But there's an opposition, there's this hostility to the truth. And this morning, Peter, he's gonna, he's gonna push back against the lies, and he's gonna tell us that we have a source of truth, that we have something trustworthy, something dependable, something reliable in the word of God. And so this morning, let's open to Second Peter. We're going to be still in chapter 1, and we're going to be in verses 16 through 21 as we continue this study, Truth and Lies, through the book of Second Peter. So the message of Second Peter is this. It's about distinguishing truth from lies so that as Christians, we can live godly lives, that God has given us these promises that contain the power of God for godliness in our lives, that there's a, a pattern for godliness that we should be pursuing, that there's godly virtues that we should be adding to our lives. And he tells us, just as we heard last week, to make our calling sure, to make our election sure, to make certain that we are, in fact, in the faith, pursuing after the Lord. And he ends that, that section of Scripture 
by saying he wants to leave us with a reminder. You see, Peter was writing this on the brink of death, that he knew he had told the church that his death was going to be soon. And so he wanted to leave them with a reminder of these things before he dies. And his fear was that the false teachers would make their way into the church, that he would make, they would make all sorts of promises to them about freedom that was really bondage. Freedom that would ultimately lead them into sensualities and liberalism and spiritual bondage. That wasn't freedom at all. And so Peter, he's, to summarize, he's saying this, do not follow after false teachers, but instead pursue holiness. That's, that's how we can summarize 2 Peter. Do not follow after the false teachers, but rather pursue after holiness. And what we see in this text here is that one of the main reasons that we should be doing so, that we should be pursuing after holiness is because of the future coming of Christ. Peter says that the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night. We're gonna get there in just a few weeks as we get into chapter three of Second Peter, but he says the day of the Lord will come like a thief, that the earth will be destroyed, that our works will be disclosed, that he's going to expose our works and that he's going to judge the world. And so what Peter's saying is knowing that this day is coming, make sure that when he does return, that he finds you pursuing after holiness, that you don't want to be found pursuing evil, but you want the Lord to come back and to find you pursuing after the things of God, because here's what's going to happen. Evil will be destroyed alongside evildoers. And he says, don't be with the evildoers because they are going to be destroyed. Rather, the only thing that's going to remain is righteousness. And so the problem is that these false teachers, they didn't actually believe that this day of judgment was going to happen. As a matter of fact, they completely denied the return of Christ. They denied that he was going to come back. And well, if he's not coming back, well, then that must mean that there's also not going to be a final judgment. And because of this, because they didn't believe Christ was returning, they didn't believe there was going to be a final judgment, it led to them feeling like, well, we can just live however we would like to live. And this false teaching was creeping into the church. And so Peter's writing them and he's going to remind them. He's saying, no, no, in fact, Christ is going to return. And then he's going to give them three trustworthy sources of, of evidence to this. He's going to say, you can trust me. He's going to say that he, he was there. He witnessed something and that he's reliable, that you can trust him. And if you can trust him, then you can trust the rest of the apostles as well. He's going to say that you can also trust the prophets and he's going to point to the Old Testament, the, the prophecies pertaining to the return of Christ and the power of Christ's coming. And he's going to say that the, the prophets predicted this time, and so you can trust them. And then ultimately, underneath all of those things, what he's really getting at is that you can trust the scriptures. You can trust the Bible, the Bible that you have this morning, the Bible that is with you, even the one on your phone. You can't trust a lot of the other things that are on your phone, but the one thing you can trust on your phone, you can trust your Bible. You can trust the scriptures. So let's read. We'll start in verse 16 and we'll work our way through the text. So number one, you can trust the apostles. He says this starting in verse 16, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses. This is important. Eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God, the father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. What an awesome name for God. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves, we heard this. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. 
So we can trust the apostles, right? Right from the jump, right from the start, what Peter is saying is that we did not bring you myths when we told you about the coming of Christ. This, this word myth that he uses here, this is an accusation. This was the accusation from the false teachers. They're saying, number one, not only is what you're telling them not true, that this is just made up, but there's also intent of deceitfulness, that you're bringing them a, a dishonest message and you're trying to deceive them. This was the accusation against Peter from the false teachers. This word myth carries these, these uh, connotations of accusation. And if you look back to that survey we mentioned earlier, what this really is ultimately, this is an accusation against the Bible. What was the, the statement was that people believe that the Bible alongside other ancient texts are just helpful myths. This is an accusation against not just Peter, but against the backdrop of the scriptures. And so we're, we're no different today in our understanding than the false teachers were then. You know, we believe things like, you know, Jesus, he was a good teacher. He said some really good things. The miracles, I don't know. The miracles, maybe not, not so much. You know, the virgin birth, probably not very likely. You know, Jesus, he, he, he was probably, probably a, a real person, but, you know, I wasn't there. I didn't see him. I didn't see the miracles, so they probably never happened. And so we reject these teachings in the scripture and alongside it, what follows very quickly is the morality and the moral teaching that Jesus taught as well. We reject the truth of what Jesus did and then ultimately we reject the truth of who Jesus was and then we reject what Jesus said. But Peter's telling them, he's saying, no, this is, this is not a myth. How do I know this isn't a myth? Well, because I, I was there. Like I, I was with him, I saw him with, with my own eyes. I heard the voice of, of the father. And the interesting thing here too, is he says that I wasn't alone. He's like, just in case you thought that maybe I made this up or maybe I was confused or maybe, maybe I hallucinated or maybe I was just really tired. He's saying, no, I, I wasn't there by myself. I was there with, with John and I was there with James and we were on the mountain together. Look at how Peter's gonna change the, the language that he uses here. The first 15 verses of Peter that Pastor Byron preached to last week, Peter continues to refer to himself. He says, I, I want to remind you. I want to encourage you. I greet you. But then here he changes and he says, we. He says it five times in these passages. He says that we were there. We saw, we heard, we were there. He's wanting to confirm this with the, Peters, the people that are reading uh, his letter. And this is critical for you to understand and for myself to understand that as Christians, we have a faith that is tied to history. That Christianity is a historical faith. That Christianity makes historical claims. It makes verifiable claims. It gives us dates. It gives us names of kings and rulers and of high priests. It tells us where events took place. Paul, he told the church in Corinth, he said, hey, look, after Jesus was resurrected, over 500 people saw him and spoke with him. If you don't believe what I'm saying, you can go find them. Many of them are still alive. If these were just myths, if the story of, of Jesus, of Christianity was just a myth, the biblical authors would not have written the book this way. You have to think and consider how information was transmitted in that time period. If you wanted to know if something was true, you just had to go talk to the people who told you about it. And so the biblical authors are so confident that they're saying, that's fine. I'll actually tell you who they are and you can go speak with them yourself. The authors of, the, of those scriptures would not have written this way. 
They wouldn't have wanted you to put their claims to the test if they weren't true. These aren't Greek myths. These aren't stories about, you know, a long time ago and in, in a land far, far away. This is Peter on the mountain. He's with Jesus at the transfiguration. Pastor Byron, he posted a link to, the, to a sermon from the series that we did walking through the book of Mark. And he goes into a lot of detail about the story of the transfiguration and, and what this is, is about. And so I won't go into it this morning, but I would encourage you to go back to the Connect page and you can watch this sermon and learn a little bit more about that transfiguration experience. But I want you to understand this morning is that Peter says that he saw him, that he was with him on the mountain, that he saw him not just there, but he saw him in power. He saw him glowing. He saw his robe turn white as light, that he saw power come upon him and he heard the father's voice speak honor and glory over him. They caught a glimpse of what Jesus's return is going to be like. And so he's telling you, I was there. You can believe me. Do not follow after these false teachers. This was not a myth. We saw it. If you follow these people, you will follow them to destruction. And so Peter continues his argument. And he's saying, look, not only did we see Christ for ourselves, not only were Peter, James, and John on the mountain, but we also have the Old Testament prophecy. And so you can trust the apostles. You can trust us. We were there. We saw it. But you can also trust the prophets. Verse 19, it says this, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. And so Peter, he has in mind here, he has the written text, the written prophecies of the Old Testament in mind. And Peter's saying, look, don't just listen to me, but you can read the prophetic word. You can read the scriptures. What I'm telling you, I experienced, this is just more evidence that the scriptures have already pointed to as being true. This is just making the scriptures more certain because they've already spoken to this. My experience is just showing you the reality of what the scriptures have already said. It's just additional evidence to what's already accessible to you in the scriptures. And we're gonna look at that in more detail here in, in just a moment, but I want you to see what Peter says, the way he speaks about the scriptures. He says that they are like a lamp shining in a dark place. You know, I'm a morning person. Do we have any other uh, morning people? So I'm a morning person. I like to wake up early. Go. <laughs> it's just a few of us, yeah. We're at the 8.30, so most of us are morning people, right? But I'm a morning person. I like to wake up early, either go to the gym or, you know, I'll go out to my office and read. I just like to be up early before everyone else is, is awake. But it seems to never fail that when I want to wake up early, I forget to, to put out the things that I need to get my, my day started, right? So if I'm going to the gym, I'll, you know, I'll forget to get my gym bag ready. If I'm going out to the office, I'll forget to grab you know, a pair of shoes and, and a shirt or whatever it is. And so inevitably what happens is I don't want to wake up Courtney. I don't want to wake up my wife, right? And so I, I don't turn on any lights. We have blackout curtains in our bedroom, which I encourage you to get. They're amazing. And so it's, I mean, it's dark, okay? It's dark in our room. And so I'm, I'm feeling around and I'm, you know, I'm bumping into the dresser. I'm trying to grab my shoes and I'm knocking something off of my nightstand or I'm tripping over a pillow on my way to the closet. And I just want to know why we have so many pillows. <laughs> like we sleep on two pillows, but I swear we have 10 or 12 pillows and they all, all the other 10 are just on the floor. I'm like, this. all right. It's, it was, it's normal. Okay. That was going to be my next question. It is normal. That's fine. Okay. I can bring that back to Courtney. But inevitably I'm tripping and I'm, I'm stumbling over things and I'm, and I'm falling 
and you know, eventually I'll get the things that I need. And of course, amidst all the ruckus that I'm making, you know, I'll, it's inevitable that I'll, I'll always hear this. It's like Christian Bale's Batman voice, just from like underneath a blanket on the side of the bed. Like, I'm, if you don't get out, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, okay. You know, Courtney is, Courtney is very sweet when she's half asleep. So, what, you know, I'll pull out my phone. That's, what, that's the next step. I get my phone, I get my flashlight, and I just start, you know, make sure, and then I very quickly exit uh, the room. But Peter's saying this, Peter's saying that your scriptures, that the word, it's like a lamp shining in a dark place. David writes in the Psalms in chapter 119, uh, this, this chapter dedicated to the scriptures, he says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light for my path. And you need to understand that we live in a culture that celebrates in the daylight the things that Paul calls the things of darkness. That the same sensualities and immoralities that the false teachers condone, the light of God's word is going to expose those things. And it's going to help you navigate through life so that you're not bumping into everything, so that you're not tripping and stumbling through life. And he says, when the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, when this the day of Jesus's return, we're no longer going to need this lamp because Jesus will be our light. He will illuminate everything. He will expose sin. He will expose the darkness. But until then, you need your scriptures. Until then, you need your Bible. You need to read it. You need to study it. You need to meditate over it. You need to pray it. You need to trust it. You need to believe it. You need to obey it. Peter says you would do well to pay attention to it because it will help you and it will protect you. So you can trust the apostles and you can trust the prophets. You can trust the word of the Old Testament. But what Peter's really getting at underneath both of those things is that you can trust the scriptures. You see, you can trust the apostles. Peter, James, and John, they were there on the mountain with Jesus. They were eyewitnesses to his majesty. They saw him receive honor and glory. They heard the voice of the father. And it says that what they experienced, it only more fully confirmed what the prophets had already written about. So we can read verses 19 through 21. He says this, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We can trust the Old Testament. We can trust the prophets that spoke about this day of the Lord, about the last judgment. It spoke about Jesus' transfiguration. We can trust the scriptures. And there's a few things that I want to see in this particular passage about the Bible. Some things that are very critical, very important for us to understand about the nature of Scripture. And the first of those things is this, is that the Bible is God's word. Now, for many of us, that's probably a very redundant statement. Like, well, of course, the Bible is God's word. But you have to understand that there, again, are many people who do not believe this. There are obviously many Christians who do not believe this. That's to be expected. But there are Christians who do not truly believe this, that do not understand this. There are even, you know, we're not going to get into all the neo-orthodoxy about liberal perspectives on the scriptures this morning. That's not what the sermon is about. But there are Christians in the church who do not believe that the Bible is the word of God. You know, maybe it contains some of, of the words of God. Or, or maybe it's a word from God. But what I'm telling you is that the Bible is the word of God. That's an important is, that the Bible is in fact the word of God, that the words, the text, the actual words in your Bible are God's words. 
There's a word that Peter uses here. It's actually in verse 20. It's translated to scriptures, but the word is graphe. That's where we get the word graphite. What Peter is saying is he's referring to the physical text that was written down by the prophets as being the word of God, meaning that when the prophet took pen to paper, the words that came out were divine, that they were God's inscription on the paper. But why is this important? Why would it be important that the, that the words themselves are, are God's words? Well, it's important because it means that the authority of God's word is in the text itself. That the authority of God's words are in the text, in your Bible. And people don't like this. They don't like this because it means that it's unchanging. It means that it's, it's permanent. It means that it's not going away. It's fixed. It means that truth is not subjective. It's not whatever I want it to be, but it is objective, that it's not up for debate. It's not about our experience. There's not your truth and my truth. There is God's truth. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't get to experience God's text because we do. We get to experience the word of God. Why? Because the author of Hebrew tells us that it's living, that it's active, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword, able to separate the bone from the marrow, the spirit from the flesh. So we still experience the reality of God's word, but the word itself does not change. It is unchanging. And so that way it can change us. It's unchanging and we conform to it and not the other way around. So this text shows us that the Bible is God's word. The second thing that it shows us is this, is that even though the scriptures came through human hands, through human authors, that the, that the text of the scripture, our Bible still contains divine words, that these words are no less divine despite having come through human authors. This is what 2 Peter 2.21 teaches when it says that the men spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. There's a theologian who is bearded and long dead named B.B. Warfield. Uh, The best ones always have a good beard. And he's written one of the most influential books on the doctrine of scripture called The Inspiration and Authority of the Bible. I would really recommend it if you have any questions about biblical or, or scriptural theology. And he calls this process concursus. And that's kind of a strange word, but it means this. It means that God used the skills, the, the intellect, the personalities of men who were fallible to write an infallible word. That God did not override their personalities. He didn't, uh, you know, some people call this a mechanical mode of inspiration that he didn't, um, you know, take their, take their hand and, as, you know, and just, oh, what is happening here? You know, like a, like a Ouija board or something. It's like, that's, that's not how the Bible was written, that they wrote the text but God inspired or worked through them to ensure that the text that they wrote were his words. And this idea of infallibility, what it means is that the Bible is not only without error, but because it's God's word, it's incapable of erring. It's infallible. It's incapable of having any errors. The Bible, it is a human book, but at the same time, it is a divine book. And it doesn't mean that there's a possibility for error in your Bible anymore than the possibility that Jesus had sin because he was both fully human and fully man. Your Bible is free of error. It is the perfect, trustworthy word of God. And the authors of the Bible, it says they were carried by the Holy Spirit. So what does that mean that they were were carried along or they were carried by the Holy Spirit? Well, Warfield explains that the term here, it's a very specific word, carried. Some translations, if you have an older translation, might say the word born B-O-R-N-E, by the Holy Spirit, to bear something or to carry something. And he said that this word, it goes beyond guiding, beyond directing, beyond controlling, or, or even leading. 
He says that they were taken up by the Holy Spirit and brought by his power to the goal of his choosing. That the words that they spoke were not their own, but immediately they were divine because they were spoken by the Spirit of God. Like I said a moment ago, when their pen touched paper, the words that they wrote were God himself's words. This is why the prophetic word is so sure. God made sure that what he intended to communicate through the text, it's exactly what the writers wrote down and he did it without overriding their personalities. This is what we call the inspiration of the scriptures. The third thing we see is this, that I mentioned a moment ago and we'll close here in just a moment is that the Bible is without error. And I know I said that just a second ago, but I wanna look at it just a little deeper here. The Bible is without error. I want you to understand this, that the authorship of the Bible is God himself. That the scriptures don't come from human interpretation. They're not produced by the will of man. And so if they're not from man, but from God, then they must be true because there's no error or deceit in God. There's another author, Kevin DeYoung in his book, Uh, in in a book that he wrote about the scriptures, he puts it this way. It says, inerrancy means that the word of God stands over us always and that we never stand over the word of God. That this doctrine, it's the heart of the Christian faith because the message of the gospel came to us in words. The heart of the gospel message is in the scriptures. This is the same reader, the reason that Peter's writing this letter. There's no way that he's gonna ensure that his message is going to stay around to continue to encourage and build up the church to push them towards holiness unless he writes them down. He knows that his word will die with him unless there's a way for him to transmit it to the rest of the church for all of history, for us. We have the letter because he wrote it down that he put pen to paper in our Bibles. We have no other access to the gospel message without the written word. And if we begin to rule some things out of the Bible, then we can rule anything out of the Bible. We have to believe that it's true, that it's God's word. If parts of the Bible are not dependable, then ultimately we become the ones who are the ultimate deciders of what should stay and what should go in the Bible. Can you see how quickly this becomes dangerous? This is how Christianity becomes compromised. And so Peter, he's writing, he's pressing back against the false teachers who denied the truth of the scripture. Because think about this, if we cannot believe what the Bible says about miracles, how can we believe in the miracle of salvation? If we can't believe what the Bible says about history, how can we believe in the historical fact of the resurrection? And if we can't believe these things, then Paul says that our faith is in vain and that we should be pitied above all men because we are still in our sins if Christ did not rise from the dead. You can see how quickly a misunderstanding of of the scriptures can become dangerous, how false teachers can twist it and it becomes deadly to the life of a Christian. So as I'm closing, I want you to listen to me on this. The Bible is God's word. Therefore, the Bible is true and it is trustworthy. You know, if you wanna talk to me after service about questions about the Bible, you know, I, I recognize this was not an apologetic sermon about the scriptures, about, you know, but aren't there errors in the scriptures and inconsistencies and aren't there contradictions? And, you know, can we really trust our translations of the Bible? And didn't we get our Bible just from a bunch of people in the fifth century who just decided, well, these are gonna be the books of the New Testament. And they just pushed all the other books out. Like those are good questions. Those are honest questions. There's answers to those questions. And I'd love to talk about it, but I just wanna say this. I'm gonna put a slide up, a picture on the screen I wanna show you. But I wanna say this, that your Bible is the most historically attested, the most reliable ancient text in existence with more manuscripts that are closer to the date of their original authorship than any ancient document that we possess. And it's not even close. 
It's not even close. So there's this picture on the screen. I'm sure you're like, what in the world is this crazy rainbow that is? Some of you may have seen this picture before. You may be familiar with it, with it but what it is, the lines on the screen that are in color show the 63,779 cross-references within your Bible. Let me repeat that number again. There are 63,779 occasions in your scriptures where they reference one another, where they reference themselves. That's incredible. If, it was, if this was from just one person doing this, it would still be incredible. But think about this, that the Bible is not just one book, but it's a collection of 66 books written by over 40 authors over the course of 1,500 years on three different continents with one message about one person, with one gospel, the gospel of Jesus. So maybe, just maybe, it actually was written by just one author. It's incredible. The unity of scripture through all of time, through so many pens of so many different people telling the same story. And that's incredible. But what I wanna leave you with is something that's just as incredible is that the good news of Christ, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, it's been recorded in the facts of history. That Jesus, he existed, he was born, he performed miracles. He died on a Roman cross for our sins and he was resurrected from the grave, overcoming Satan, sin, hell, death, and the grave so that you could be resurrected with him when he returns in power. And Paul wrote to the Corinthian church and he said, look, there's 500 people who saw him when this happened. It's historical. You can, you can talk to these people, they're still alive. Peter and James and John, they saw him. They had a glimpse of his majesty on the mountain. They heard the Father's voice. So Christians, listen to me. We do not follow myths devised by men. Christianity is anchored in history. God predicted the gospel story, the return of Christ a thousand years before. The prophets speak to it. It was recorded in an infallible, unchanging, inerrant word that is living and active and it will radically transform your life. And I wanna tell you this as I close. This I was telling Zach as he was putting the pulpit down. It was very interesting. The story that Byron told you in the beginning about our, our, our Bible study. I wrote that story to close out my message, which I, I thought was so wild. But just like he said, you know, Byron and Ashley, Courtney and myself, my wife, we were young, we were dumb, we were new Christians and we didn't know a lot, but we knew this, we knew the Bible was God's word. And so we read it. That's all we knew how to do. We didn't know how to do anything else, but we knew how to read the Bible because we, only because we knew how to read. There was, that, was, that was all we knew. But we knew the Bible was God's word. And so, you know, I can, I can remember. I can remember those days in David's trailer with, with holes in the floor and in rugs so they wouldn't, we wouldn't fall through. And that way we, could, we knew where the hole was. Like, oh, there's the rug with the hole. Let's be careful. But all we knew was to read the Bible, and so we did. And what we realized over time that it was less of us reading the Bible and more, the Bible began to read us. And so when I look back and I see that room that started with just a few people that grew to be 15 people to 20 people, and I look out at redemption on a Sunday morning and I see over 500 people experiencing life change through Jesus, believe me when I tell you that God's word is alive, that it is active, that it is true and it will change you if you read it, 
you pray over it, if you study it, if you meditate on it, read it with your spouse, read it with your children, read it by yourself at the coffee table, read your Bible. It's God's word, it is true, it is trustworthy, and it will change you.